What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to a senior writer at Anscape and an American Mosaic Journalism Prize recipient. We're talking about his new book, The Movement Made Us, A Father, A Son, and the Legacy of a Freedom Ride. His name is David Dennis Jr. Uh, He put this book together with his father, who is an absolute legend of the civil rights movement named Dave Dennis. And I can't wait to speak to you all about it. I can't wait to speak to David about it. I mean, the book is like no other civil rights history I've ever read. Um, I've also got some choice words about the change of strategy and the push for Brittany Griner's freedom. Just stand up and just sit down awards and more. But first, let's talk to David Dennis Jr. Talk to us first, please, about who your father was, who your father is, and how this book came about. Yeah, so uh, my dad, uh, Dave Dennis Sr., um, is, uh, you know, I guess what mostly known for uh, being one of the uh, freedom riders uh, who took the bus from from Alabama to Jackson, Mississippi. Um, He would go on to uh, be heavily involved in the civil rights movement, one of the sort of premier architects of the 1964 Freedom Summer. Um, he was, you know, in core through uh, Mississippi, dear friends with Megger Evers and Goodman Cheney and Schwerner, and um, delivered a, a, an extremely powerful eulogy at James Cheney's uh, funeral that sort of helped uh, change the course of the, of the movement in, in uh, 1964. And now mm. he's... Uh, He's and you know he's my dad, so he's he's a pretty mm. good guy. It's not bad. Yeah, I mean, I got so many questions. I mean, first and foremost about you know that that moment uh, where he spoke at Cheney's funeral and really played a role in shifting some of the political terrain of mm-hmm. the Black freedom struggle. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, how familiar were you growing up uh, with his history? How familiar with you, were you with your father's past? How familiar were you uh, with the movement itself and the politics of the movement growing up? Because I think it's probably worth explaining to folks like, you know, you're you're what, you're 33, 34 years old. Is 30, that right? David? 36. I'll take 33, 34, though. We'll, OK, we'll... <laughs> so so so, you know, you've got this this gap period between mm-hmm. when your father made this speech and when you were born. And uh, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So I knew um the my dad's stories in sort of broad strokes. You know, I knew um, sort of these episodic tales that he told and not really the larger picture of what the context of his stories. You know, I'm I'm not a you know, I'm not a historian. I didn't know, um, uh, you know, I don't know tons of of deep cuts about the movement, you know. Um, and so when he's telling me these stories, I didn't really have the chronology in my head as he's telling it to me, you know, um, you know, I knew Freedom Ride was 61, Freedom Summer 64, uh, you know, things like that. But I didn't I wasn't deeply vested in the 
I won't say deeply vested, but I wasn't sort of just deeply knowledgeable about the ins and outs of the movement. And I'm, I'm honestly still, now I wouldn't consider myself any sort of civil rights historian at all still. Um, I know a lot about my dad's time and the things surrounding him and, you know, some of the sort of larger political um, things that were happening at the time. But I sort of really wanted a real insular story. Like I wanted to tell the story from, you know, the perspective of somebody that was so far deep in the trenches that, you know, there's almost no time to sort of um, absorb the larger national picture. So um, this book taught me a lot. Like my dad, like putting my dad's stories in a chronology taught me a lot. I had to do a lot of reading on on what was going on. And so I, I did learn a ton about about the movement through this process. Mm. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, you write the book in his voice mm. and I could see making a, a decision to write the book in the third person, for example, mm. as you know, more straight bio. Was that decision difficult? Was that decision obvious? And was it, uh, I don't know what the word to use, was it therapeutic to actually do the book in, in your father's voice? Yeah, so it was, that was a decision from the very beginning. I was just like, always wanted, I was going to do it in, in, in his voice, um, just because I, I wanted it to be, I wanted to put you there, you know, I wanted to put you right there and make you feel what was going on. And I think the first person is, is really the best way to do that. And I also think there's a, there's a meta commentary in there in the fact that, you know, me at, at, um, 36 or, you know, 33, if anybody wants to, print. <laughs> uh, you know, at my, at my age, um, writing from the perspective of writing mem uh, 80, you know, year olds memories of being 20. And the fact that you can't tell really whose thoughts are whose at some points, you know, when, mm. you know, and I think that that in itself is an indictment of, you know, the lack of progress that this country has made, the fact that I'm in 2020, when I, when a lot of this is written, 2020, 2021, writing things about race in America that my dad felt in, in 1961 and that people still feel today and that the voices can be interchangeable. So I think I wanted to put a lot of that in there um, also. Mm. And was it therapeutic to do this book? Was it, was it I mean, something that was almost healing with regards to you and your dad? Yeah, it was therapeutic for us, for sure. For dad and I, you know, there are also um, a few letters in the book that are written to him um, about our relationship and about how the movement impacted our relationship. And, um, you know, dad and I were in a good, really good place. Obviously, it takes us to be in, in a good place to even start this process. Mm -hmm. We were in a really good place, um, but it was a very sort of unspoken good place, which I think a lot of dads and sons, especially black dads and sons can relate to where you just sort of get to this, um, this equilibrium where you love each other and, you know, you don't worry about fixing a lot of things. You just, it's fine, you know? And so, you know, us having these conversations me writing these letters to him and us having, you know, grappling with it put us in a, in a totally different place that we sort of didn't think was possible where we've spoken the things that we need to say to each other. So that part was very therapeutic. Now, writing and spending so much of this time essentially feeling like as my dad, you know, mm -hmm. and going back then, back there was um, sort of like the, I don't know, well, I don't know if it would be therapeutic, but I know that 
you know, now I feel like I knew Medgar Evers and especially Medgar Evers and, and, and um, Mrs. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, which were two of the people who um, I didn't obviously did not get to meet. You know, I met a lot of the other folks who were in the book and, uh, you know, James Chaney and, uh, and Mickey Schwerner are also people who like I feel I feel like I know now, you know, in a, in a weird way. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're the things that were done to them that they, you know, the, the killings of, of Evers and, um, you know, Chaney and, and Schwerner, uh, especially are, are really hard, a lot harder for me to, to cope with now than they mm. were before. What was something you learned about your father that you didn't know before putting this book together? Um, I think the thing that I learned is that, um, I did not have, like I said, I didn't have an understanding of the chronology of all of this stuff, right? Like this book was originally going to be um, short stories because I don't, you know, biographies, for me, reading and writing biographies that like, that have downtime are sort of difficult for me, you know, like if there's um, something that happens in you know, one year and then the next big thing happens two years later, then you have to mm-hmm. write about all that in between time, you know? Um, and sometimes it can be, it can get a little tedious sometimes in books if you don't do it the right way. Right. And so, um, I was sort of like, I wanted to do short stories. So I want to skip all that stuff. I wanted to skip my dad's downtime, right? Like the time where mm-hmm. I was, he was like sort of just filing paperwork and, you know, like organizing and that stuff. But what I learned it was that there was no downtime. Like this mm-hmm. book ends up being pretty almost like a straightforward um, memoir that doesn't have any gaps in it because there was just constant stuff happening and overlapping and happening at the same time. Or one weekend this happens, the next weekend this happens, and it just does not stop, you know? So that was the part that was really sort of, you know, eye opening for me to understand exactly. Um, just how constant the barrage of, you know, actions and trauma and activity was going on for for, for him and, and his peers. Mm. Now, I, I want to ask you a few more questions about the, the writing process, because I, I do feel like this is a, a very unique kind of book. You know, a son writing the experiences of his father and his father playing such a pivotal role in uh, the, the defining struggle of the 20th century. But if, if you could explain to us a little history about the significance of your father's politics, particularly his speech at James Cheney's funeral, and what that helped facilitate in the movement and why it was so important. Yeah, so so um, Goodman, Cheney, Schwerner were, uh, you know, sort of long story short, were um, murdered, assassinated, lynched, however you want to say it, in, in Neshoba County, uh, Mississippi. Um, in 1964, leading into the Freedom Summer, which was um, a project where, you know, hundreds of uh, volunteers, young kids, mostly, you know, a lot of them white from around the country were coming down to Mississippi to help um, get black folks registered to vote and, and you know, help uh, set up a, a, a challenge to the Democratic National Convention to show that this was an, you know, it was basically an illegitimate election that they were running because they were disenfranchising a lot of black folks in Mississippi. And so what a lot of folks in the movement knew was that this would be a dangerous 
activity for a lot of these these white kids. They've been trained, but you know, it's still it's dangerous. Like you know, there's a lot of attention. They're going into uh, these sort of backwoods areas that are not, you know, that you can easily get lost in. And so uh, what what happened is that is I, I, when Goodman, Chaney, Schwerner were down there uh, earlier to investigate a, a you know a church bombing and beating, um, they went missing. They went missing for more than a month. And when their bodies were found, well, let me back up. They were missing for more than a month, and my dad was supposed to be in the car with them. That's a very mm-hmm. important fact. Is that he? Um, they came to meet him in Jackson. He was going to go down with them. But he had uh, bronchitis, just happened to have bronchitis. And they said, just, you know, just it was sort of nonchalant. Just, you know, just hang out. You know, we got it. It's not going to be a problem. So uh, they find the bodies and dad delivers this this painful, passionate eulogy at James Cheney's funeral. And what it does is, you know, Core at the time wanted him to have this sort of peaceful speech. Right. This kumbaya, we shall overcome, we'll persevere type of speech. And he just did not do that because he just it was too much for him. But what what the speech did is that it brought so much attention to the pain, the death, the uh, struggle that the folks in Mississippi were going through that it really, you know, allowed um you know, it, it created a, um, a safer environment, actually, because there was so much attention now on um, these kids uh, coming down to Mississippi. It also, you know, brought the country's eyes on what was going on and helped, you know, bring a lot of attention to when they eventually did uh, challenge at the Democratic National Convention. Mm. You know, I, I don't want to ask you to answer a question for your dad, but given that you just wrote a book in his voice, I think right. it's, it's appropriate. Uh, um, you know, the, the movement clearly, when you read the book, the movement, you know, it gave so much to your dad, but it also took a lot mm. from him as well. Uh, what advice do you think he would have to like young generation of activists, uh, people wrestling with the next steps in the Black Lives Matter movement, people wrestling with questions of self-care and struggle, mm. the urgency of the moment while needing to understand this is a long term fight? What advice do you think uh, he would give? I think his advice is that everybody um, has a role to play. And you don't need to feel compelled to die or to be martyred or to sacrifice yourself to be part of the movement. That was his, you know, he felt that was his calling. You know, like he felt as though he should be somebody who should be sacrificed as part of the movement. He was willing to die for the movement. But and but that should not ha- necessarily be everybody's feeling going into something. You know, if you if that's how you feel, that's you know that's how you feel. But it doesn't make you less of you know a pivotal figure if you want to preserve yourself. You know, um, if you trust other people to sort of do certain things. Like everybody has a role to play, and if you just do something, you know, you don't. If you just do one little thing, then it's it's welcome. And it's necessary. And then if you feel compelled to do more, keep going. And, you know, I think we need a sort of um, to push people to do to do things, but also understand that, you know, sort of have faith that people are doing sort of the best they can. Mm. Now, you've been uh, you, you went to Davidson College. You've been a successful writer about culture and politics. 
is having a father with the history of a Dave Dennis. Has that been, would you describe that more as, as blessing, burden, or a combination of both? I would never say it was a, it was a burden because he never uh, pushed me to, you know, do this sort of stuff. He never, he, he, he's always said that he's felt, again, like I will just find my way in, in it, you know, doing mm-hmm. in the way that I write or if I decide, like he's always sort of trusted me uh, to, to, you know, do what I feel is right. And he's also, you know, mostly concerned me good, being a good dad and husband. Uh, and being a better mm. husband than than you know than he than he was, and that sort of uh, a form of movement work in itself, right, is how we take care of our families, how we provide for our families, and do well for the people who who love us closely. So that's always been the thing that he's been um, his main focus has been. But I've never felt. Uh, I mean, I felt compelled. I felt, um, you know, I have felt a legacy. I have felt you know, pride whenever we get to, whenever we do things that change uh, the course of, of certain moments or events. But I've never, you know, I haven't um, really, I mean, I think at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, beginning of Ferguson, I was sort of conflicted about how to uh, go about uh, movement work and, and, and my place in that. Uh, but you know, I've sort of settled into a um, sort of confidence and sort of a, a understanding that I'm I'm doing something. Mm. You know, one of the parts of the book I loved, and one of the reasons why I think like Nation Magazine readers should check it out and read it, and scholars and all the rest of it, is that it reminded me of uh, books like Charles Payne's "I've Got the Light of Freedom" or uh, the parts of Taylor Branch's "Parting the Waters" that mm-hmm. don't deal with King but deal with the actual grassroots. Mm-hmm. of how the movement developed was 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 that a goal going into it to provide that kind of grassroots hey it's not just dr king rosa parks that the that this is at the actual uh protein of the movement it was people like dave dennis and the work that they did was that was that a goal going in yeah i mean and not only was it a goal like my dad was not going to do a book otherwise you know mm. um he has always always wanted to defer to and highlight um, the people who are not, whose names will never get mentioned in other places, you know? Um, and yeah, uh, you know, uh, Branch's book, part, you know, Pardon the Waters, th- those were extremely influential. Local People was extremely influential. Mm. Um, you know, uh, Coming of Age in Mississippi and Moody's book, extremely influential about how to do that. And, you know, that was, integral that was one of the goals like i think dad's you know you reading a book about dad and and myself is a, is a trojan horse for you to learn about folks you would have never heard of you know mm. victoria gray Annie divine um co chin amzie moore I, I mean herbert lee we can go on and on and i hope that those people um shine through in the book as much as as um you know my dad it is remarkable when you're reading the book and you hear descriptions of people as being like brilliant public speakers and uh, incredible organizers, people risking their lives. And you just think like, wow, like, wh- where are these where are these folks now? Where are their kids now? Like what like is the, the, the legacy question shines throughout the book. And it's it's very it's very powerful, man. It really is. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, that, I mean, that was that's. Um... You know, I think I want people to come away from this 
you know, heartened by me and dad's relationship and where we are now. But also I want you to think about the people who did not live to have that, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, James Cheney's daughter was born, I think, um, so, like the same week that he was killed or I think something like that. And, you know, Megar Evers had, you know, kids and, you know, Herbert Lee. And all these folks like who have children who should have been around to have this sort of relationship that dad and I have grown into. And they didn't because they were they were killed before they had the chance or folks who, you know, lived through it, but were so consumed or so overcome by the the trauma that they could not make things right with their children. Like they're like, I want you to think about what has been gained by me and my dad, but what could have been by a lot of other people in their families. You know, we're obviously living in very difficult times these days. Uh, do you see this book as perhaps also being something about, you know, 2022 going forward and what it takes to build a kind of resistance movement against forces that want to tear us backwards? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of this book was written um, summer 2020, you know, mm-hmm. um, in, in the, the time of George Floyd. So a lot of this is written then and a lot of this was thinking about what what the message is and i think there are some very practical uh you know i didn't want to do uh neither of us wanted to do you know old civil rights veteran wags his fingers at the young kids and tells them how to get how to get this done you know Mm -hmm. um what we did want to do is show you what he did right and one of the important things that that dad and and all those folks a lot of the folks back then did is they understood that movements were already happening on the local grassroots level wherever they went, you know? Mm. And I think that's important to know um, now is that there there is a resistance movement in every single corner of this country. You know, there were people in Ferguson before, Mm -hmm. uh, before, you know, Mike Brown. There were people in Minneapolis before George Floyd. There were people in Florida before Trayvon. There were people already there and the best thing you can do is show up and say, how can I support instead of saying instead of showing up and saying this is like this is my thing now, you know, mm. um, and I think that was a real practical thing. We wanted to make sure that we that we put in there. Mm. So uh, what's your dad think of the book? Um, he's He likes it. You know, he's he's uh, he's happy with it. You know, I, you know, I have my um, pre. Uh, book anxiety, so I called him this week to double check. <laughs> I was like, "You still like the book?" <laughs> you know, and so he's 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 happy with it, you know. And I think mostly he's happy that we, like we said before, we highlighted the people who um, we wanted to we wanted to highlight. Dang. So what do you do for an encore after this? I mean, it feels like writing the book of one's father's life is like a crowning achievement. Like, do you have any plans for a follow up? I have none. Like so, so this was gonna be. I had a, I had a, um, a plan back when I thought writing books was easy. You know, <laughs> and I was like, uh, I'm gonna do. You know, I, I felt like I could do an essay book of like the stuff that's in my wheelhouse. You know, like the mm-hmm. pop culture stuff. And I was like, I could do that. That's no problem. I'll do a couple of those, and then once I'm, you know, established, I'll do this book about my dad. And that's my, that's my plan, right? <laughs> and so, uh, life don't work out like that. You know, and so, um, I. You know, it's dad was getting old, you know, he's getting older. He's 81 now. And, you know, we want to get this stuff done. But also at the same time, it was a very fraught time. You know, this was, you know, Trump was president, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it was like this is urgent. And so 
this became the first book. And so I have no idea what's what's next. I probably hopefully a nap at some point. That's that's probably yeah. I got I got going on next. Man, I, this is this is going to sound like a question way off way off the base. Uh but you know you 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 went to Davidson. You know, it's a big part of your bio. You rep Davidson a lot on social media. You clearly got the pride um, in the fighting. What are they? Like owls? I don't even know what Davidson is, man. Wildcats. 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 My bad. Um, so, yeah, I don't know why I said owls. So, you're Davidson grad. What was it like to be an undergrad at Davidson and be armed with this history of your family and be just walking around a lot of just regular ass college students and you're, you're coming there, you know, and let, let me be frank, like, like a predominantly white institution, you know, right. and, and you, and you're, you're there, the son of Dave Dennis. I mean, what, what was that experience like? I mean, did you feel like, okay, you know, these folks have something to learn from me. Did you feel like maybe I should transfer out of here? Like what, what was college like for you? So one of the, one of the beauties of being from Mississippi is you know, we, we have this reputation, right, of like, you know, I don't want to go to Mississippi. It's so racist. It's, you know, the worst city, worst state in the country, blah, blah, blah. I have an immense amount of Mississippi pride, right, because mm-hmm. I've always had an understanding of what what resistance movements have done in the state of Mississippi, right, mm-hmm. and homegrown resistance movements. And I've always felt like, when I go to these places, like I go to Davidson and I, and I did the college, I did college trips. I went to Brown, you know, I was, I went to Brown for the, you know, college tour thing. And then like really, you know, high institutions. I did a summer at Exeter and all this stuff. And I always felt like no matter what these folks think about me or think they can say to me, like they, it has, they cannot compete or they don't understand what kind of genius and brilliance and movement and organizing work that I come from, you know? So I always mm-hmm. amongst folks with the confidence that, you know, underestimate or whatever, but like we come from stuff that you just can't mess with, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think I carried myself like that. Now at Davidson, I also uh, led this sort of rally when a bunch of racist stuff was happening to me my senior year. So we, we did some rebel rousing on there that I think dad was pretty proud of. And I talked to him and he talked me through sort of that organizing work for that. Um, so, yeah, so those are those are some of the ways that that I think, you know, I carried myself at Davidson and, and sort of the, the rest of rest of my life. Good God, that sounds like a story. So you're at Davidson and you get advice from. Uh, an, an absolute, you know, icon of the civil rights movement to deal with your stuff. That yeah. had to feel like having a, you know, like a, a ray gun in your back pocket showing up to a knife fight or something. It was, you know, it was really, you know, my dad and my mom too, like both of them were always, I mean, young when I was young, because I, I dealt with, you know, I dealt with teachers who were terrible teachers in middle school and high school and probably, you know, anti-black or racist teachers uh and they were always like we got your back if you know if you're doing what you think is right we got your back you know um i remember when i was in seventh grade a teacher pulled me into the hallway and told me she thought i was racist against white people right and um 
my mom showed my both my parents showed up, but my mom showed up and like lit into it, right? <laughs> and so like I always felt, you know, I was never scared to, to just do what I felt was right. And so at Davidson, there was a um I, I, there was a uh, HBCU Livingstone College nearby where I pledged uh, Phi Beta Sigma, and, and I had a bunch of friends, and they would come over and hang out. And long story short, one of the white uh, frat houses we were trying to hang out uh, like called the cops on us and told us we were making the white folks uncomfortable. And so um, I wrote an article, and I had these shirts made, and we did this rally, and we did all this stuff. But I was calling Dad through the process because. I, he like he is a community organizer. That is his gift, mm-hmm. right? I have I cannot do that. <laughs> I cannot mm-hmm. organize people. I can't do this. So I was calling him to see, you know, think about the logistics, and also for for him to just be like, you know, just do it. You know, do it and you'll be fine. And so that sort of, you know, belief and having that in my back pocket was sort of always something that, um, you know, was was great to have from my childhood. You know, that's to me probably one of the most moving parts of the book was actually early on because part maybe because I relate to it, but about your 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 father sort of getting reinvigorated by Bob Moses mm-hmm. to get back into the fray and being like, wow, th- these are the these are the shoes in which I'm most comfortable, so to speak. And yeah. That, yeah. That, that's that's beautiful. W- would you say that I was hoping if you could just say something about that, about y- your dad's second life as an organizer? And would you say that outside of family, the most important person in your father's life was Bob Moses? Yeah, I would think I would I would definitely say so. Um, you know, Bob, you know, dad has said a lot of times that Bob Moses came back and saved his life. Well, he saved his life twice, essentially. You know, he got yeah. him out of Baton Rouge and sort of got him um, into, um, you know, voter registration work. And, um, you know, he. uh came back in the 90s you know dad had spent most of the time after he left the movement 70s 80s just totally detached from the movement everybody sort of was like it was like leaving leaving war you know Bob, you know mm-hmm. you know bob had gone to um you know to, to africa and sort of did de- de- you know detached from that and dad was sort of you know in a, a sort of a mess to be frank you know like he was you know just out of it he was doing you know he was mm-hmm you know, doing drugs and trying to figure himself out and doing work that was really unfulfilling, like law work that was just, you know, there was money, but it wasn't what he, you know, what his passion was. And so when Bob came back and introduced him to this idea of the algebra project and math as the, um, you know, sort of a new frontier for fighting for equality, uh, and dad got back into community organizing work, it sort it really got him on the right path and sort of cleaned his life up and brought it, you know, brought him into a, a new, a new movement space. Mm. That's amazing. And Bob Moses, such a giant, mm-hmm. um, for sure. Um, one last question for you. You've been really generous with your time and the book is fantastic. The movement made us a father, a son and the legacy of a freedom ride. Um, we always ask folks on this show when they do books, like what music they were listening to when they were putting it together, what mm. music they were listening to when they were writing, what music maybe they were listening to when they were winding down after writing. And you in particular, I wanted to ask this because, you know, your writing about music has been mm. 
so prodigious. So can, can you tell us a little bit about the music that animated your work? I was listening to, um, I was listening to a lot, a whole lot of uh, children's video game soundtracks because a lot of this is written during the pandemic while my son was <laughs> uh, at virtual learning right next to me. So <laughs> a lot of a uh, lot of Disney songs <laughs> that was a uh, that was part of the writing process. But uh, no, I think there was a lot of uh, Gil Scott Heron that I was listening to. Um, there was a lot of Big Crit, who uh, you know is a rapper out of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of Isaiah Rashad, uh, who is out of Nashville, who is, you know, one of my favorite artists and, and he was, you know, doing a lot of, you know, he does a lot of music about his relationship with his father also. Um, you know, so that was, that was really a lot of the, the stuff I was, a lot of Southern hip hop because I was trying to tap into that that's you know i was writing this book really trying to make sure i tapped into that southern pride you know that feel that that pride that i was talking about earlier about being from mississippi and changing stuff getting stuff done and you know being sort of pressed upon by white supremacy and fighting back even harder so i was really trying to get into that south got something to say type of mentality especially since um i was writing a lot of the mississippi parts you know, when being unable to travel to Mississippi, which was real tough. Yeah, exactly. I know that feeling for sure. The pandemic writing process. Yeah. uh, yeah. It was a challenging one. Well, you've been super generous with your time, David. I really do appreciate it. The the book is The Movement Made Us, A Father, A Son, and The Legacy of a Freedom Ride. Before you go, any words on winning time, the Lakers show? And I wanted to get your two cents as to what you think of this uh, project. Yeah, you're okay. seeing on HBO. Yeah, we got. Yeah, I'm, I really want to get into the, with the winning time. <laughs> it's like, uh, Let's I, chop know, it the, up. The last episode was was a lot better. I, here's my here's my issue with winning time, is that it feels really mean spirited for no reason. Mm. You know, like it feels, and and especially compared to the Apatow other work and who they cover and Vice and all that stuff. Like they have this sort of like lovable evil white guy thing to it you know Mm -hmm. and these are like horrible people that those movies are about right and this is sort of like about the lakers right (laughs) so it's like Mm -hmm. i mean the lakers have i don't know and so a lot of the choices that they've made in terms of fictionalizing stuff just feels like only like mean-spirited right like the worst of folks right and it's and it bothers me because it's like Magic Johnson and Kareem are two very iconic black figures, right? Mm-hmm. And like, why are you making that choice, especially with them? Like, I, like I understand. Like Magic Johnson's documentary did him no favors in this in this aspect. <laughs> like, it really sort of um, made you know, especially when he's talking about Cookie and stuff like that and their relationship and sort of how he laughs it off really makes Winning Time a little bit more palatable because it's like, no, oh, well, that's actually not so far from the truth. Mm-hmm. But I think up until you know, this last episode, last couple episodes, they're really focused more on the game. I think uh, Kareem and Magic were very just one-dimensional uh, characters. You know, Magic was just a sex hound and a womanizer, and Kareem was just like this curmudgeon, and it didn't really give me a full appreciation of all the other stuff that that made them who they are, which I feel a sort of way about a white guy doing that to two of those, you know, iconic figures. But again, like the last couple episodes sort of 
um, did a little bit more character building than than the earlier episode. So I'm 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 coming around to it a little bit more. It's entertaining for sure, but I'm not sure how necessary some of the changes they made were. Who can we give uh, props to Quincy Isaiah and Solomon Hughes as Magic and Kareem? Oh, they're for, fantastic. I mean, the acting is fantastic. You know, yeah. I think, um, you know, Magic just jumps off the screen. Um, as I mean, it, it's yeah. The, I mean, all everybody's just being a, just a great um, a- actor in 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 the show. I mean, it's, it's a if if it were just totally a totally fictionalized show. I'd be like, this is just fantastic. This is like one of the best shows <laughs> out. But I think the, the fact that they're taking so many liberties and doing all this stuff with it is, is, is bothering me. But the acting is just incredible. No, that that's very fair. It's um, I don't think the show has as many has as much uh, to use something I used earlier in the interview. I don't think it has as much protein as it thinks it does. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of cotton candy. Uh huh. But yeah. man, as, as a show that's getting people through some crappy times. Right. That's, uh, that's something, if nothing yeah. else. But I, you're making you're making some good points, man. I hear what you're saying about that. And uh, the more Kareem, the better. You can't have too much Kareem for me. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, David, th- really do appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much for being on the pod. Oh, thank you, man. This is terrific. I'm going to say the name of the book one more time so everybody gets it. The book is called The Movement Made Us, A Father, A Son, and the legacy of a freedom ride. If you have any interest whatsoever in the history of the black freedom struggle, we have a book that is now an indispensable part of its library. We'll be back right after this message from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, for two months, the response of the sports world to basketball star Brittany Griner's disappearance and then jailing in a Russian prison for allegedly possessing hashish oil has been near silence. For two months, we heard that the State Department was going to handle it. For two months, we heard that we were going to let the Russian justice system run its course despite the shredded political amicability between the Putin regime and the United States. For two months, we heard from the WNBA that they were respecting the wishes of Griner's family and staying quiet. For two months, we've seen most of the sports world, which would have been holding daily candlelight vigils if Tom Brady was facing years in a Russian labor camp, seem blasé about the whole affair. For two months, people have been begging the league to stop telling its players not to comment, that we needed to raise up Griner's name and not stick our heads in the sand. For two months, the argument has been that without pressure, the U.S. government would have Griner's freedom low on its priority list. Now, with Griner's trial looming on May 19th, at long last, there has been a change in strategy. There's finally a modicum of hope. The freeing of Trevor Reed from a Russian prison camp, the incredible words written by Griner's wife, Sherelle, and the continual pressure by tenacious fans and grassroots media members has produced change. 
The State Department has reclassified Griner's case as one where a person has been wrongfully detained and is effectively being held as a political hostage. They have taken her case out of the consular's office, which was doing little more than trying to ensure that Griner was not being mistreated while behind bars. An important task, but not an avenue toward freedom. Then late on Monday, a State Department official emailed ESPN a statement that read, The Department of State has determined that the Russian Federation has wrongly detained U.S. citizen Brittany Griner. With this determination, the Special Envoy for Hostage Affairs, Roger Karstens, will lead the interagency team for securing Brittany Griner's release. This is extremely significant. It means that the U.S. State Department has cast off the fear that raising up Griner's name would make her a political pawn in tense times. It means that Griner could be eligible for another prisoner swap, the same method that freed Trevor Reed. It means that the WNBA can stop pretending that Griner is the invisible hostage and do what they do so well, speak out, be heard, and use their cultural capital to propel Griner's case firmly into the public realm. It means that the rest of the sports world can be held to account for their silence. The weight of this should not exclusively be on the shoulders of WNBA players. The entire sports world, media, players, executives, needs to raise up her name and say, free Brittany Griner. The WNBA Players Union got a head start. Aneka Ogumike, the union's president, said in a statement posted to social media, it has been 75 days that our friend, teammate, and sister, Brittany Griner, has been wrongfully detained in Russia. It is time for her to come home. Having learned that the U.S. government has now determined that BG is being wrongfully detained, we are hopeful that their efforts will be significant, swift, and successful. Then on Tuesday, the WNBA announced that it would keep Griner, quote, at the forefront of what we do. There will be a decal with Griner's initials along with her number 42 on the home court of every WNBA team. And let me tell you, the NBA should at least do the same for the duration of the playoffs. But these desperately needed actions must be seen as a jumping off point, and that alone. In just two weeks without swift intervention, Brittany Griner will be in a Russian courtroom facing five years in a labor camp and 10 years behind bars. We are getting a late start, and that is an outrage. But this is not the time to mourn that fact. It's time to do all we can to ensure that Brittany Griner, basketball icon and political prisoner, comes home. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award Stand up. does go to the WNBA, not just for speaking out for Brittany Griner, which they started as their season went underway uh, this past weekend, but also the fact that they have spoken out against uh, the Supreme Court leak that aims to throw this country back into Neanderthal times. 
or at least uh, the age of the Salem witch trials and criminalize abortion and reproductive rights. Uh, good for the WNBA issuing a statement about that. I expect we'll hear more from them in the future about this. And frankly, every athlete, uh, whatever your gender may be, should be speaking out against this manifest injustice because guess what? We've been saying this on this show. A lot of people are saying, oh, they're coming for abortion rights now. They're going to go for marriage equality next. They're going to go for this next. They're going to go for this next. And that ignores that they've already been going for stuff. Ask trans youth if things haven't already been started to roll back. Ask teachers, ask librarians, ask women in prison and what their reproductive rights look like. So these rights have already been taken away while a lot of people have not been noticing. And now people are waking up to this fact and let's just hope they haven't boiled the frog already and that there still is the capacity for the kind of red hot outrage that it's gonna take to keep the barbarians at the gate. Another Just Stand Up Award goes to J.J. Reddick for this clip on ESPN's first take. It's because he plays with joy and fun and a carefree attitude and a fearlessness. You can't take away what makes a player great. So there's no shut up and play. God, he is so polarizing. I can, for all the fans that you think listen to the podcast and watch them, I can give you 50 million fans who would tell you the same thing. Enough already. So he is a polarizing athlete. Sure, there are certain younger fans, especially, that like to hear him play. I'll give you a large segment of older fans who have followed the NBA for 60 years, who are, this is not a political scenario or a race situation, who have followed Wilt and grew up as a Nick fan, who loved Clyde and loved Reed yeah, but and I, loved I, the I, Pearl. Yeah, I disagree with you on that. I don't think, I don't, I'm not saying it's a race situation. I'm saying that this, the, the fans you're talking about, they talk about athletes that way, like you just talked about an athlete. I think there's a lot. The I think people, there's a the people large on Fox, segment. The people on Fox News talk about athletes that way. Well, that's, I mean, that's I, my I, issue. And Fox News that's is, my issue. I, I don't actually care about the fans that watched Bob Cousy play right. or watched Wilt play. I don't care. Right. I appreciate that I, they've been NBA fans that long. Right. But I don't appreciate the undertone. Look, anybody who can shut up Chris Mad Dog Russo will always get a Just Stand Up award on this show. But the fact that J.J. Redick did it politically and the fact that J.J. Redick has become the most likable, politically on-point person at ESPN, despite being J.J. Redick. I mean, if you had told me this when he was at Duke, I would have said, no way, no how. But this guy over the years has proven himself to be an absolutely right-on-time individual. So, J.J. Redick, for putting the smack down on Chris Mad Dog Russo and for making a political point that needed to be made, just stand up award for you, buddy. Stand up! The Just Sit Down Award this week. Sit your ass down. I mean, goes to Mike Vrabel, though, the whack-ass coach of the Tennessee Titans. He's doing some rally with Donald Trump. And to do a rally with Donald Trump is disgusting anyway. Uh, to do a rally with Donald Trump is unforgivable anyway. But to do it as an NFL coach, given the way that Donald Trump has used NFL players as a racial punching bag for years... I mean, it is absolutely disgusting. It, it, is, it is wild to me that uh, the stick to sports or the shut up and dribble, it, it never goes to white coaches, white owners. It never goes to people who, frankly, who are espousing right-wing politics. And that to me is why it always goes back to something, God, I've been saying as long as I've been doing this work, which is that when they say sports and politics don't mix, 
they're not really talking about sports and politics. They're talking about sports in a certain kind of politics, sports and resistance politics. When it comes to politics that oppress people, the sports world is only too happy to gather that into their ample arms. Uh, Mike Rabel, for real, dude. Just sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to our guest, David Dennis Jr. Thank you so much to David Tigaboo. A lot of Davids this week, three of us all hanging out uh, here on the podcast. Uh, David Tigaboo being the producer of the pod. Thanks for everybody out there for listening. Listen, if you like the show, help us grow the show. Tell a friend, send a file, do what you got to do. Last week's show about minor league baseball did great. And we want to keep up that momentum this week. So please help us out. Um, write a review, do this, do that. There's so many things you can do to help spread the word about a podcast and ours should be at the top of your list. Come on, help us out. Wait, this all sounds way too desperate. So let me just wind it back and say for everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>